Hello, my name is Dylan, and this is the Heroes of Reality podcast, a place where I interview heroes of reality, of life, science, technology, and more, and I share the stories, lessons, journeys, inspiring you to be the hero of your reality. And in this podcast, I interview Victor Lazaro. After graduating from design school, he began his career inventing, designing, and engineering products in a variety of areas. Now, after 30 years in product development consulting, his products in the consumer, medical, and technology spaces have helped millions live better lives around the world. He sits on the board of directors for several startup companies. Victor also began his journey into personal development 20 years ago. This journey has led him far and wide. Victor now writes, video blogs, and speaks on design, creativity, and personal development. I really enjoyed this conversation, and without any further ado, I present Victor Lazaro. Hey, Victor. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, Dylan. How are you? I'm doing awesome, man. What you been up to lately? I haven't seen you in a little while. Well, um, mostly work these days. That keeps keeps me busy a lot. I, I run a design company. Mm-hmm. We do product development and product invention. So, you know, started this company about 10 years ago. So it, it eats up a lot of my time. And between that and some of the traveling and trips I've done lately, that's Pretty much, pretty much it. You know, I can I can be a homebody if I don't if I don't watch it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, designing products and inventions, and then it sounds like it's you know transforming ideas into reality, and then also on the areas of kind of you know personal transformation kind of stuff. Yeah. So I started I started my career out as an industrial designer. So I went to art and design school because as a little kid I. I was one of those kids that loved drawing Mm -hmm. and building things. And I was always in the basement building projects, repairing boats and, and just finding stuff that can keep me busy. Cause I grew up on five acres of land and we had no TV. So my house had a lot of books that looked like a library and there was, there was nothing to do other than homework or, or projects or go out and play. So, um, at 10, I started the landscape business, and I started cutting everybody's lawns in the neighborhood and then painting their houses and, and doing all kinds of yard-related stuff to keep myself busy. But I always was drawing and building things, and I didn't even know that was a career until, you know, I thought I was going to be a medical illustrator because part of me wanted to be a surgeon when I was little. <laughs> so I was always drawing pictures from Grey's Anatomy. And um, then I was like, nah, I don't know if I really want to draw my whole life. That, I, so I wasn't sure I wanted to do that and wasn't sure I wanted to go through medical school. So uh, my dad was, a, was an architect and came home from because he taught at uh, Pratt in, mm. in Brooklyn. And he came home and he said, there's, you know, there's a career called industrial design. And I was like, what the heck's that? And he was like, those are the people that design products. I've like, never heard of it. And I think I was like 14 or something when I heard that. And so I'm like, well, that's what I'm going to do then. I'll go to industrial design school. So um, I applied to RISD, which is the Rhode Island School of Design in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. It was my number one choice in my uh, kind of my dream college. And I got in. Wow. And it was good because it was the only college I applied to that I got into. I applied to two and I got into <laughs> one. So, uh, yeah, and it was, it, was, it was there that I learned about industrial design, which is really the, it's the front end of inventing. It's um, 
how you create the user experience. You come up with the look and feel of products. Mm-hmm. Um, so every basically every product that you can see, whether it's an automobile or whether it's a cell phone or a camera or a medical device, the outsides that you interact with, the, the, the physical part of the product that you interact with, is they're all, it's all created by industrial designers. But I always had this part of me that loved building things and figuring out how things worked. So uh, my first job out of college, I was doing mechanical engineering and design at the same time. So I was engineering the products I was designing. And so that was always a thread throughout my life. So this company that I run now, we, we do everything from the first concept idea all the way through to the nuts and bolts of manufacturing. And we don't stop our part of it until we push play on the button that manufactures the product. Wow. For, for production. Wow. Yeah. So then you have people that literally come to you with like napkin drawings and go, I have this idea, this thing I want to get out there. And then you, you, you lead them through this, pre- this process. Is it, is it a creative process? Do you just run with it? Is it's a collaboration with that person or what does that process look like when, if, if, I mean, do they come with a napkin or what does it look like? We, we don't work with individuals too much. Uh-huh. Uh, mostly work with companies. Uh-huh. But yes, it, they come with a napkin sketch, so to speak, a metaphorical yeah. napkin. Like yeah. a company will come with an idea. Mm. They'll either want to. So we're primarily in consumer tech and medical devices. So if it's, they'll come with an idea and they'll need it developed. So we'll be talking about features, what's in the product. Um, What's it going to look like? What the size of it's going to be? How much is it going to cost to build it? And yes, these projects can run years. Wow. So, and it, because even the manufacturing process is slow, it takes a lot of work to develop a hardware product. Yeah, especially so, yeah. if you're, I mean, you're, you're making these out of, um, these items and you have to go and you have to take it to be mass produced. You've got to like make the die. You got to make the cast. You've got to drill it out. You've got to go maybe fly over to China or something. And I don't know if you get it mass produced over there or not, but then there's that whole back and forth with them where you're trying to mass produce designs that if they do something that's slightly off, that could skew and mess up an entire, you know, batch, you know, at volume, which is, you know, probably could be very, very costly. It, it absolutely is, and yeah, and I've been we've manufactured all over the world. Yeah. So yeah, it's everything you just said, and it's it's taken me. So this is my thirty first year doing it. Wow! Congratulations. I started I started in eighty nine when I graduated, and I just and I've been a consultant the whole time. So that means we work constantly on multiple projects at the same time. So I've I've lost count how many I've done. It's probably pushing close to a thousand programs at this point, point. Wow. Um, and. I forget more products that I've designed, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those jobs that, you know, it'll be going great one day and the next day it'll yeah. be a whole bunch of problems and you'll solve them and it'll be going great. And then you'll, you know, it's just, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a labor of love to get a product out there for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, w- I guess what, that, what are like the, the moments of like excitement with that or what, what is the feelings that you get from doing that? What keeps you coming back on it? Cause everything's, Everything can be a grind, but what are those those magic moments that you've had while while building out these products? That like, what's the feelings that they give you, or you give to other people that makes you keep coming back on that grindstone? Well, there's there's one point. So we we um, when we initially do our concepts, mm-hmm. um, we we render them in in computer software programs, mm-hmm. and they're photorealistic renderings, and we do animations now too of concepts. So this so I'll start with like a concept sketch. And or sketches and spend a lot of time thinking about how this product 
would would be and then the team puts it all together and that first photorealistic rendering where yeah. the highlights are all shimmering and all the materials are called out and it's like it's that that juices me when i when i see that first image where the rendering is almost so perfect you can't tell it's a computer rendering and mm-hmm. you think it exists but it doesn't and and then you explain to people what you've created and they're just like wow like this didn't exist and now it exists in the realm of you know a digital rendering when we were started out there was no cad um there were no no rendering packages or anything not even photoshop so everything was rendered by hand with airbrushes what are the different, let me ask you what are the different skill sets that are needed at the different phases because it sounds like there's a creative phase in the beginning, but then you know it's just as hard. But it sounds like it's different. What are the different skills you need to have in the early on uh, creative design, prototyping phase, that then to the scaling, rolling out at mass production phase? Well, it used to be early on that it was linear. People thought of it in a linear fashion. So industrial designers were artists, and they sketched what they thought products should look like in the future. And then they handed those off to people that were mechanical engineers and, and people that were talented in executing. Those people would create the drawings, and then they would hand it off to a manufacturer to figure out how to make it. And over the years, the tools have gotten better, and the understanding of the process has gotten um, more, um, more deep. And now we understand that you need to be bringing in all aspects of design from the very end in terms of manufacturing it to the very beginning of the process. Because decisions you make at the beginning will have a drastic effect on what the cost of the product will be and the quality and all of the aspects in the manufacturing. So you have to know that initially. So you have people that are experts in manufacturing, people that are experts in materials, people that are experts in sourcing, people that are experts in software, if the product has software, um, there are people that know electronics for to do PC board layouts, they're mechanical experts. I mean, there's, and then there are the artist people that figure out the user interface, their ergonomics. It, they're huge teams. It, it sounds like and, it take, takes a village. And the more complicated the product is, the longer it takes to execute and the more, um, the more people you need. Mm. I mean, it, you know, but it's but it is not a small undertaking to get a product. And that's one of the other things that's exciting is once it's finally done, and you look back at you know a year to two to three four years of your of your work, and it's finally a product that's out there. You get to have that sense of achievement that you've made a product that people are now using. Yeah. And a lot of my products are still on the market after 10, 15 years. You know. I, and it's pretty cool to, to see them out there and kind of go, wow, that's, that's kind of neat. Yeah, it's like seeing your own baby out in the wild, right? And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah I made you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that. And with every job, it's like, you know, there's, there are days you're just kind of like, I can't take another problem. But, um, but yeah, you just, well, you, got, you got to look at it as, you know, you're always yeah. looking for a win-win and trying to figure out how you can solve the problem. So yeah. it is. And I've learned a ton about creativity from being forced into having to be creative quickly. Mm-hmm. So when I was younger, I would I would sit at my desk, you know, for eight, ten hours sketching ideas. And I would get stressed out about deadlines. And the more I was stressed out about deadlines, the 
the longer it took me to solve the problem. I would I would sit there and sketch the same thing over and over again and rehash the same solutions and days would go by, weeks would go by and you're like, I'm not getting any closer to a solution. And that's when I realized that when you're under stress or you're in this place where you're sort of choked off from the universal wisdom, mm-hmm. um, it only is like it's a, it's a defeatist spiral that takes you the the less you actually see so it's really really important that this is one of the things i've learned just in life in general is it's all about confidence everything in life is about confidence and confidence in, in so many ways in our lives and for designing and creating the confidence is i know i can solve it mm-hmm. like, i don't know what the answer is now I don't know when I'm going to come up with it, but I have 100% faith that if I sit down or think about it or go away from my desk and walk around a little bit and come back, I will have a solution or someone on my team will. 100% confident, will figure out a way to move forward. That loosens up the log jam and then your brain's just says, okay, bring it on. And then, you know, thoughts start rattling around and then you say something and it might be the solution or it might trigger somebody else. And then next thing you know, you've got a solution, but it's, it's, it's confidence and faith in knowing that you're open. Talk to me about that in terms of, so if someone's sitting there with a blank piece of paper or they're trying to work a problem, they, and, and they, they feel that, that, that trigger of oh I can't do this I'm not gonna I'm not gonna figure this out and they start to go in circles and they start to spiral down I guess you know what are some you know I guess what are some tactics you mentioned a couple here that you could do to kind of shake in that loose I mean is it words of affirmation do you say I've got the confidence I can totally do this I know I'm gonna figure this out are you remembering moments in time do you I mean are there certain things that you can do in that moment to get out of that spiral yeah, and it's really interesting how um, I realized this many, many years later. I, For some reason, I was always put in a managerial position. So right out of college, my first job, I was put in a managerial position. And I never wanted to be. Like, I'm like, why am I the manager? Like, we, we started on the same day or, like, we, we get paid the same amount. Why? And I don't have manager next to my name. Why are you making me responsible? And I was always told, well, you're the mature one. Like, And I'm like, I don't want to be. <laughs> And so I just want to go out and drink and hang out at bars and come in and sketch my pictures and go home. But so I was always put in this position of managing other people. Mm-hmm. And it was out of fear that um, that I actually learned how to break the log jam. And that's why sometimes fear is an interesting motivator. Uh, I didn't intend it this way, but... I was so fearful that if I wasn't better than the people I managed, they wouldn't respect me. And um, I was an inexperienced manager. I was young. And um, I literally, out of sheer panic that I have to be better than everyone else, um, I motivated myself to think of ideas quickly. Mm -hmm. And that with skill over time, all of a sudden I realized, holy crap, I can do this. And that's when it all kind of came together and I realized that, you know, if I just relax into it, it the solutions will mm-hmm. come. Staring at a blank piece of paper, it's like even when you write, you know, because I write a little bit now. If if you stare at a blank anything, obsessing about what you're going to create, you just shut yourself off from the creative source. Whether it comes from within you or whether it comes from some other place, who knows, but... Um, you cut, you choke it off. So 
you, there are a couple of things. You can change your state. You can do something physical. You can go exercise. You can walk around a little bit. You can, you know, just try working on something else and coming back to it later. Or you can just, like, I never really had much luck, like, um, just sketching nothings to try to break my log jam. That just, I just wound up sketching nothings for hours. Mm. Same thing with writing. It's like, I mean, you're not in the mood for it. You just wind up writing a bunch of crap. But I mean, if you change your state and come and come back to it with, um, with a more open, like allow yourself to just be, feel into whatever it is you're trying to create and just be open and allow stuff to come. It's, a really it's like trying to fall asleep when your mind is all full of stuff. You never fall asleep, but as soon as you empty your mind, it's like you have a better chance of falling asleep, right? Versus obs- obsessing quiet. when you're laying in bed going, I have to sleep, I have to sleep, I have to sleep, yeah. and then your brain's just locked up. Well, it's an interesting balance between the feeling the fear of the situation, but then relaxing into that fear and saying, okay, all right, I've been here, I've done this, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to slip right through this. Um, have you done a lot of things around... Because um, it sounds like you, you're very familiar with, you know, state changes and getting into the flow of things and wrapping things around. I mean, have you have you gone through different like programs or systems that have given you insights to be able to be more aware of this type of stuff? Yeah. So um, when I was when I was in my early 30s, I um, I I was not really on a good path. I was sort of lost. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I remember reading a book. It was The Dark Side of the Light Chasers by Debbie Ford. And I did what I normally do, do is I pick a book and go right to the middle of the book and read a couple pages. And if I like it, I'll read the whole book. And if I don't, I put it down. <laughs> so I remember opening to this like random page in the middle. And she was talking about how the unowned parts of our personalities are things that we try to hide from others because we don't want people to see them. And her analogy was it's like holding a ball filled with air under the water. And every unknown personality trait is like a ball that you're trying to hold under the water. And it takes so much energy and effort to hold these balls down. And we spend all of our time trying to keep these things we don't want other people to see about us under the water. And every once in a while, we can't hold them all. And one shoots up in the air and everybody sees it. And we're mortified and we grab it and we try to push it back down again. And I remember reading that going, holy crap. You mean everybody already knows all the things I detest in myself and they already see them? And like I'm not really hiding them very well? I was like mortified. I'm like, oh, my God, I got to fix this. So um, I read the whole book and I was just like, I didn't know anything about manifestation back then. I didn't know anything about anything when it came to self-development i was completely unaware i was just going through life Mm -hmm. thinking i was a victim basically and um so the first ever course that i ever did was like boot camp for the mind where uh, it was a five five day course or something like that Mm -hmm. where they they literally just break you down with like military like treatment where they you know you go each exercise gets more and more difficult until you know you know you're you're you literally are broken down and then they build you back up again and at the end of that course i realized that i was in control of my own feelings i was like and i felt feelings that i hadn't felt since i was a little kid and i was like wow this is amazing and i was in the best i was the happiest i'd ever been up to that point like i was smiling and Things were going fantastically well. I was I was able to sell jobs. I was like, where's all this confidence coming from? This is incredible. So I took the second course, 
which was like two weeks later. And I went through the second one, which was even harder than the first <laughs> one. And um, then it got a little cultish and weird. And, and I was like, so I didn't do the last one. But um, it only lasted for so long and then it wore off, mm. which and then I, you know, but it was all about discipline and um, keeping your word and and realizing that you were in control of your of your own feelings and, and integrity and all that. And it was all good stuff, but, but uh, it was an interesting way of going about it. But that started me on my on my journey, and I've taken a bunch of courses since then. Courses on communication, um, read a lot of books. Um, yeah. So the, so the boot camp, it was, a, it was like five days straight, like morning and night kind of thing. You're going through it, and they're just drill sergeant yelling at you, kind of just having you open up is that kind of the process yeah. yeah oh yeah i mean there was there were all kinds of um so it started at the first exercise to give you an example of the first, i don't even think this course is around anymore mm-hmm. the first exercise was a room full of 50 people and you walked around and you had to walk up to people look at them in the eyes and either say i trust you or i don't trust you and that was it and then you just after you said that each person had to say either I trust you or I don't trust you and then walk away. And then, but the room was only 50 people and we did this exercise for like 15 minutes. So, you know, after a while you kept bumping into the same people. And after a little while of walking around, looking at people going, I trust you or I don't trust you. I I realized like, how do I know? I don't even know these people. Like, how do I know if I trust them or don't? I'm just making a judgmental decision on what they look like. And so after like the third person, I just started saying, I trust you to everybody. And I remember the first person I said, I trust you to, and they looked at me and said, I don't trust you. And I was like, wow, that hurt. Mm-hmm. And, and then after a while I, I would win them over. Like we kept bumping into each other and I'd say, I trust you. And they would look at me and go, uh, and then after they'd go, I trust you. And that was the whole point of the exercise is like, stop making snap judgments. You don't know anything. How can you know whether you trust or don't trust somebody? And that was the first sort of experiential lesson. And they got progressively harder and harder to, you know, where you had to get raw with your emotions Mm. and really get real. And if you weren't real, people would like, they wouldn't let you off. They wouldn't let you finish. Like you couldn't sit down. You had to like convince the group that you were sincere about something. It was, it was hard. Wow. And to teach integrity, the second course, I mean, these courses are expensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second course, they gave you a partner and you were responsible to be in your chair when the music stopped playing at the beginning of each day. And the, day, the courses went from like 8 a.m. to midnight every single day. Um, and so, it, and then, you know, so you'd leave at midnight, get home and you'd have to be back in your seat in your chair the next day at 8 a.m. It was like, and if your partner wasn't there, you were both kicked out of the course. Wow. So you were, you, you had to basically call your partner in the morning and say, you're on your way, you're going to be there. And if you literally knocked on the door after the song and stopped playing, you were out. You, you, they wouldn't let you in. You're out of the entire course? Out of the course, yeah. Wow. It was it was to teach a level of commitment, and then they were like, "We'll get here." And people were like, "What about traffic?" And they're like, "We'll get here thirty minutes early. Get here an hour early." I mean, they, there were no excuses about absolutely anything. It was the first time I'd ever encountered that level of of ownership. Yeah, well, it sounds like a lot of that is around is this you know there's this there's this victim mentality that we all have that we're not we, you know we're, unless you have amazing parents or a strong social structure that teach you this but you know um we're all trying to manage our emotions and a lot of the emotions come to this victim mentality of you know things aren't great and it's not my fault 
<laughs> things aren't great and it's not my fault blame the world but it sounds like a round of the buckets of you know as men we're never really given a chance to um, one be allowed to feel and say that's this is it's okay to feel this way and then two being able to own those feelings and then three being able to then start to build constructive productive um, belief in yourself because you know if you if anybody goes around and goes oh I want to stop eating fast food and every day they stop and they go I can't stop and they do that again and again and again you start to have this weird perception of yourself as I am a loser I am a victim I can't help my I am a, a, a servant of my feelings and it sounds like they just ripped all of those patterns from you and, and forced you to build up those patterns of you, you know, if you really want to transform yourselves, these are hard things that will basically be the building blocks of the faith and the confidence that you can have in yourself to be able to do those things that are necessary. Is that kind of the whole premise behind everything? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there were, there were a lot of things that they were trying to achieve, but mm-hmm. that, as a main level, yeah, they were trying to teach people that they were responsible for themselves. How and. Would- yeah. How would you like, I mean, if you had to, you know, make your own program or do a thing where there's uh, a young 30 year old, you know, has the same issues where he his emotions are bubbling up from the surface and he's trying to control it. I mean, you know, what kind of program would you put someone through? What would you ha- or have them go through on their own um, kind of journey to, to be able to to be able to kind of have uh, a similar kind of outcome? Wow, that's a great question, because I think. I think just teaching people through words is not enough. Mm. And everybody's at a different place in their journey. So it's rare that you're ever going to get a, 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 if you're doing a course, it's rare that you're ever going to get everybody who's on the same level. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have people that are much more advanced than others. And I think of the ones, the places where I've learned the most, it's always been through experiential learning where you got to feel what you were learning as opposed to just somebody telling you the answers. Yeah. I I can tell you the answers. I can tell myself the answers. Why can't I, why can't I wake up every morning and, and be in that place? It's like, like, I know, I know, I don't need to do much more self-development. I pretty much know all the basics, but but, yet we have to keep learning to remind ourselves because we keep forgetting so, yeah, to answer your question, it would have to be some kind of experiential type of course. The, the hard part is, you know, what, what exercises to do and how do, you, how, do you teach, how do you teach people? Yeah, that's a, yeah. that's a really good question. And it's just something that, you know, it, it, it seems like this suffering is necessary for this transformational phase. You need to have a certain level of suffering so that you remember. You know, if you touch the stove when it's hot when you're a kid, you remember versus, you know, mom telling you whatever, don't touch the stove. It's like, no, he will learn because he will feel that pain. Just seeing, you know, how can you, you know, is, is there a way to replicate that in a way that's not so cultish? as you put it, because there is a certain amount of, you, you know, every community to a degree, depending on how strong held the beliefs are, I mean, you know, it can become culty. The question mm-hmm. is, is, is that, is that, I think, when I, is it a negative cult or positive cult comes around to what does it serve? Is it, you know, is it all about the, 
the the main leader who just wants to have sex with all the girls around him and then it's a very much culty thing or is that culty um i don't know for example boy scouts and they're then they're of service to the people around them and their whole you know it's a little you know badges and things like that it's a little culty mm-hmm. but they're really about helping young kids young men uh develop skills to to be a better citizen and and to to build those skill sets like so is there a way to separate the the cultiness from the extreme activity don't know the answer to that i mean i think i think where i'm at right now i try not to judge things anymore mm. i mean i still do but i learned that the more i judge the more pain i'm in oh. so i mean you're asking if if somebody has a good intention is does that somehow justify that you're manipulating them to feel a certain way because that's what it really is i mean everything is about you know, a manipulation of how somebody what they feel now to like get them to a different state mm. and so you know there's there are good transformations mm-hmm. and and but it, you're right there's like there's always pain that you have to go through in order to move to the next level because it if if you think about it you're it's a layer of an onion mm-hmm. and the onion never ends you're always peeling off another layer and every layer that you move to the next one i mean yes maybe you're not dealing with big huge issues like abandonment and like you know fear of rejection maybe you get through those right but there's every level is still you push the edge you get to the edge and that's where your limit is and you push beyond it you break a little bit and then you go to the next level and you always keep evolving to an ever higher level but there's still transformation at the edge of every level i don't i'm so far away from the level of like bliss to higher bliss but you know hoping to get there but yeah most of the levels up to this point have been a little tough yeah well it sounds like yeah there's i mean there's it's all a progression of leveling up and some levels are easier than others you know you might start out with some hard ones and there'll be easy ones and there's other ones that you discover along the way that can be a bit more of a challenge but it sounds like you have to kind of start the battle anew every day and then you know if you're not paying attention you will slip into old habits old behaviors comfortability which seems to be the the death of transformation and it's just it's how do you remind yourself beyond the fact of words to actually go through that i mean do you need to do you know do you need to drop yourself into a you know a terrible situation every morning <laughs> yeah drop yourself into an ice bath swim through the ice bath get past that run past the pit of fire and keep going to start your day right or you know or can you start from a place of contentment and bliss i've, I've seen that like a lot of one you, know, you know some of the entrepreneurs I, i've i've spoken with is that they they feel like in order to be the best entrepreneur they can be in order to, to get that holy grail at the end they have to be perpetually unhappy they have to they have to have that sense of being unhappy and uncomfortable in order to get to be that self and i'm i'm always curious that it, can you have both can you be can you be a contented person that is also incredibly uncomfortable and is there a way to reconcile those two seemingly different states um, well, I've got a couple of things to answer of that, which may may or may not answer the question. One mm-hmm. is I started meditating mm-hmm. almost two years ago. So I do an hour of meditation every morning. Mm-hmm. And what started out as a painful process where I couldn't even sit for 10 minutes turned into an amazing experience of like the hour would go by in the blink of an eye and I would have like just the most amazing experiences to it sort of like leveling off. 
where it just got complacent. Like I still do it, but I have to constant, like it doesn't work anymore. Like I can't just sit by myself and just sit there. You know, I have to keep like leveling up somehow or I sort of get my meditation gets complacent and I don't feel like I'm getting what I want out of it anymore. So I start researching different things that I can do. And I also, at the end of like, I hate cold showers. Um, so, and I've tried it for years to do them and that never worked because I just can't. So I decided this time I was going to try it where I would just, at the end of a hot shower, I turn the water to cold, mm. but I wasn't going to go so fast to cold that I was shivering and miserable. I would go by increments day after day, turning it colder and colder so that I would actually enjoy the process. And surprisingly, after three or four months of doing it, maybe five months at this point, um, I can turn it to cold and it doesn't make me feel as miserable as it did when I started. So I'm actually enjoying, now I, my brain kind of goes, all right, I'm, I'm looking forward to that feeling of cold. Like it's actually refreshing. I could feel my body constrict a little bit and it actually feels good. And, so, and then like, holy crap, now I'm actually enjoying it turn into cold? What the, what the heck did that happen? So I think, I don't know if that answers the question. It's like, it, yes, you can take something miserable mm -hmm. and make it enjoyable, but maybe at some point it becomes too enjoyable where it, all of a sudden it's no longer effective. That's your new normal and you just stay there. Like, I don't know if we're destined to always have to push our edge to grow. And it's it's supposedly not required. You supposedly can just sit and be all present and everything can come to you. But I, I don't I don't know. I, I don't have those answers. Uh, uh, I'm exploring it just like everybody yeah. else. We're, we're all on the journey together, man. We're all trying yeah. to figure this out. It was just a, it was a curious topic, but it sounds like the it's like this stretching and it's almost like, a, you know, acquired tastes. And often humans will do things that they know and that they're comfortable with over things that are the best for them, right? They'll, they will they will choose those old patterns or habits, but it, it sounds like you kind of just inched into it to where the thing that you hated be, became, it became more about the momentum of the thing that you were doing and the, the pattern of the incremental cold showers that you acclimated and you got the acquired taste of the cold shower. But then after a while, once you got it, you're like, oh, now I'm used to it. This is no longer effective. You gotta uh, throw it out to to start anew. Um, has there been a way that, like, you know, it seems like you, you, you know, um, you're on, you know, two different journeys. You know, one journey being um, industrial design and loving up those skills and building out products and working with clients and customers and doing all that. And then you got into the world of uh, personal transformation, and you recognized in yourself. And as as we all do, we have this, we have this, you know. The sensation of, you know, we want to be authentic, but at the same time, you know, we want to be accepted. And so we suppress and repress all the, the negative um, reactiveness that we have that we don't want to expose other people. But that's a great analogy of the balloons popping up to the surface and trying to pop it. Uh, mm -hmm. With that, do you feel like those two worlds of the world that you're working on your own personal transformations and the world of your consultative design and industrial design are they intertwining at all? Do you see those two those two paths that you're on ever merging together? They have merged, and it wasn't an easy journey. Initially, I felt like they had to be separate because people in my business world would think I was crazy, um, and 
there didn't seem to be any place in the self-development world for what I do professionally. So I just kept them separate. Mm-hmm. And the latest in my you know, long journey of stuff is going down to Peru and doing plant medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest one being ayahuasca. So I've done ayahuasca now 21 times. I've done uh, San Pedro, which is a, a cactus medicine that works with um, ayahuasca. I've done that five or six times. Mm-hmm. And it was on... So my last journey was a month. I did a month solo retreat in, in the Amazon jungle at, wow. a, at, a, at a place where I was um, doing ayahuasca and basically sitting by myself most of the time, just learning to be with myself and get insights. And I, I realized that those journeys couldn't be separate. And... I had to merge them together because I was I was dabbling in it. I was writing these blogs about like, you know, what I learned about, you know, something here and how it applies to business. And I was sort of like trying to give it validation and credibility that way. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't merging the two. And so I, I came back realizing that, you know, the things that I'm learning on the personal development journey are the most important thing because they lead to everything and so they have to be mixed and you know that message will come out however it's going to come out some people think it's a little crazy um so yeah it is what it is i know the the insights that i've learned on this journey are all like solid Mm-hmm. They stand up to the test of scrutiny because I've looked at them in the in the broad daylight, and I'm like, "Wow, this is this is good stuff," you know? Yeah. Well, with that, I mean, I mean, you talked about a couple things with the um, the the emotions or the the characters inside of you that you don't own will bubble to the surface and pop out, and we're always constantly relearning. Um, old lessons in, in new ways and applying them forward. And it sounds like there was that another, you know, you had these two worlds, these two lives that you're living and just getting insights um, and seeing how they merge together. But you had this fear about people are going to think I'm crazy. This is crazy. And so, I mean, did you have a moment where you, you know, you were standing at the edge of that cliff and you're going to jump, jump into that, that grand abyss saying, okay, I'm committed to this. And then did you have a, um, uh, a coming out message and you know was there an experience around that was there a result around that it wasn't all at once it was incremental um, it actually started a while ago with me just being real about the things that I'm afraid of like um, just like the angst the anxiety that I suffered from like you know always feeling like nervous and like there were there were years where I had stomach aches every single day like I would go to work worried I was going to lose my job like I wasn't performing at peak level and you know people were better than me and and literally I'd make myself sick and you know we drank a lot to get get to get by that and it's like you work all day I'd go to the gym and then we'd drink all night and and um you know and I tried to hide the fact of all the anxiety and all the fears that were inside of me. Mm-hmm. And those were some of the big balls that I was holding under the water that I didn't want anybody to know that they probably, maybe they couldn't have pointed and said that's what it was, but they would, they knew something they can, was up. They could tell something shifting underneath the waters, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it's like, and I was so fearful that people would find out like how scared I really was of everything. Yeah. And then um, I had these unrealistic expectations about myself. Like I had to be perfect. Because I was a perfectionist, 
for so much of my life. And so I was a perfectionist on myself. Like I couldn't be good enough. And, and the problem is, is that perfectionism kept me from being good. Like it, it was the, it was the number one limiter, the governor keeping me back was my own judgment of being perfect. And so I was constantly dabbling with this. And I remember the first time I just admitted I'm scared shitless. Like, you know, this is, I'm like, I wish I had more control over this. And so it was like I edged my way into it and writing about it, writing blogs and and writing about things was a was a really good release. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I wrote a blog and I had my wife, Teresa, read it. I was so scared that what I wrote in there, people would judge and they'd think I was an idiot or say something was stupid. And like, did I spell something wrong or does that make sense? And like, I was paranoid about pushing and I pushed send put it up on the thing and i think 12 people read it or something it didn't even matter but it was like you know it but it was that that was one of a big step was like putting my feelings down on paper and putting them out into the internet where they'll live forever and people can and then and then you get over it and you're like all right and you know and then you start doing videos and things and you're worried people are going to judge you for how you are on video and like you know did you do well enough and it's just like after a while it's, oh my god i'm exhausted about it and so you kind of like you sort of get over it i'm not over it and getting over it so it wasn't it wasn't a jump off the cliff sure although there there were cliff-like moments where I was like, ah, I'm just going to go to that next step. All right, screw it. I'm just going to do it, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny because a lot of times, and me, me included, like, you know, you get this, like, I want to be perfect. If I'm going to put it on the internet, you know, oh, my God, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? And then you spend so much time thinking about that, that it, 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 it it's like these shackles that, that weigh you down, that you can't take any movement. And then, then you build this, slowly build this momentum of inaction that just, just traps you. And, you know, so many times, like, I've, one of the things I've noticed too is like, you know, we all want to be, you all want to be perfect and you want to be strong, you want to be these things, but people want authenticity. They want to know that like, hey, because we're all, no one, none of us are perfected by any stretch of the imagination. And, and just putting out the fact that, you know, like it's 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 odd because as men we need to be strong, and we're usually only able to allowed to to have two emotions. We're allowed to feel good or shitty and angry, right? Those are like the two the the range of emotions that men get. But in a civilized world, we're not even allowed to be angry. So most of the things that comes out as I'm good, right? And we don't we're never really taught, um, you know, or or are given the allowance to ourselves or by anybody else to actually say, hey, I'm scared, man. This is hard. This is this is a terrifying thing, and you know if you could, you know, g- give me a minute to talk, it would really help me out. It's that is a difficult thing to do. Even talking about plant medicines, ayahuasca, um, you know, that's something that like I I I met your wife while we were in Peru and we were doing the ayahuasca. Though those are things that people don't feel comfortable talking about, even though we know that there's a lot of benefits to it and there's a lot of science that shows it. I I believe that. Um, uh, Ayahuasca is almost a little mini hero's journey in a cup because it's something that you never really do get comfortable with. Well, I actually haven't hit that yet, where you actually go through it and you, you go through this whole level of, of um, pain and discovery and self-understanding and realization that you, 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 you shed away a lot of those, those, those um, uh, I don't know, uh, shields, armors mm-hmm. that they have. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Joseph Campbell's The Golden Buddha Story at all. I'm not, no. No. Um, so it's one of my favorite stories, and it's one of the reasons why I actually really love um, 
well, ayahuasca, but also uh, Burning Man, the actual place. And the story goes like this is uh, there was a, a village, a monk village, where there was a golden statue of a Buddha. And one point in time, the, a Mongol horde was going to come and invade that village. And the monks were like, oh, we got to get out of here. We got to run away. But what about the giant golden statue? Oh, we can't have them take it. If we leave, they're going to take it. So, okay, what if we cover it up with dirt and clay? And so they take mud and dirt and clay and they cover up the whole thing so it looks like an ugly, messy, you know, dirt statue. And they run away. The Mongol hordes come. They look around. They realize, okay, there's nothing here. They see the statue. It's, it's nothing. They, they then leave. Right? Years go by, and then monks finally return back to the village, but they've forgotten about the statue. And time goes on until finally one boy, one monk boy, uh, bumps into the statue, and a piece of the hand falls off. The cake of the dirt flakes away, and he sees the statue that's actually gold underneath. And he goes, oh, my God, runs back and grabs the village and says, the, the Buddha's golden, the Buddha's golden, the Buddha's golden. They go back, and when they, when they come back to the statue, they start removing it. They see that the Buddha is actually golden. What's the entire point of this story is that um, inside, our, we all have this inner child that is seeking to, to have its own inner light shine, right? Uh, to be our true, authentic, free-loving selves. But in order to protect ourselves from societies and judgments and you know just day-to-days, you armor yourself up. You suppress that self, you cover yourself, you, you protect yourself. And the whole point of it is in life, it's a game of removing the armor to let that inner golden light of yourself shine. And it sounds like you know a lot of the journeys that you've been on, and one of the things that I've been on too is how do you how do you constantly find ways to remove that armor? Because you know there's certain things that works for a while and then it stops working, and then you don't pay attention, and it starts to get all dirty again. And so you know one of the things that I was curious about, one of the reasons why I was asking you around, okay, if you were to redo that boot camp story, and you're going to have other people go through it, you know how how do you get people to go through that process to to you know, to remove all that stuff as you talked, breaking them down so they can build them back up. Yeah, great question. And I think you're right that if no matter how much we know, we no matter where we are, if we don't keep pushing ourselves or growing or seeking, we'll level out. Mm-hmm. And I don't, so I think it. I think it's just a question of finding different modalities. Mm-hmm. And you find a modality that works for a while, and then when it stops working, which it eventually will, then you find a different modality. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the journey is figuring out what modality is right for you. Yeah. Almost reminds me of planting in a garden, how you have to like, if you plant the same crops year after year, after a while, it won't, it won't actually raise anymore because all the nutrients will be gone. So they do crop rotations. They're constantly mm-hmm. rotating those crops to keep them fresh. Do you see, um, could you imagine like ultimately if you were to, um, the holy grail of blending together both of these worlds of personal transformation and consultative industrial design, do you know what that would look like? Um, or what you would like that to look like, um, you know, six months, a year, three years out? Do you have an idea of uh, a vision ahead for that? I love, I love teaching what I've learned to people that want to receive it. So ultimately, I mean, I do a lot of that now anyway. I coach, I coach people on the process of design. So people call me up and I explain the process to them. And I love that part. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, there's such a huge thrill and excitement for me to share knowledge that I've learned some of it from 
years of mistakes and hard-earned things that I've learned that I know is valuable and sharing that for, with the intent of helping someone else achieve what they want to achieve. And it's, it's probably one of the most satisfying things. I mean, I thought creating stuff was cool, and it is, mm. but helping someone else create something by giving them the key or the piece of knowledge that they need is it's really amazing. Like I'll meet people every once in a while that I've, that I've known for a while and I haven't seen for a bit and they'll come back and tell me something that I told them like 10 years ago. I've totally forgotten and they've never forgotten and they've been saying it to a bunch of people and saying, you know, you said this and I never forgot it. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> so it's like our words, what we, what we tell people, you never know. It's such a cliche, but you never know what you say will be the thing that changes somebody and makes a difference. And so, yeah, the way I see myself growing is I, that's confidence in me grows more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And I help, I help others that want to learn. I give them some knowledge or some piece of the knowledge of like what I've learned on my journey. Because not too many people have gone to the jungle three times and, you know, sat by themselves for almost a month, you know, doing ayahuasca and learned a whole bunch of things. And, you know, so I've got that to share, plus years of doing like what I, what I do and what I know. I mean, there's certain whole areas I know nothing about, but I do know that. What, I mean, so many questions, but I mean, around the, the world of, um, you know, the plant medicine and all that, I mean, uh, I mean, do you have some lessons or insights? Were there any um, vivid messages you took away um, while um, in the jungle that you'd be open to trying? Yeah, so some of these might be a little trippy, but um, so I went into ceremony one night with a, with a pretty bad stomachache and the shaman said she'd work on it. So she was, she was actually pushing on my abdomen um, where the pain was and it was excruciating. And I was lying there and as she was pushing on my abdomen, like right on the spot, like where it hurt, um, I felt this really um, lonely sort of empty feeling like the devoid. I remember the best way I could describe it is like they're devoid, a, a void of no hope. Like there was no hope. There was nothing, just blackness. And I remember I almost freaked out for a second and I would have, it had been the first time I'd ever done ayahuasca. But I remember thinking as soon as I felt that I was like, all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I don't like this. And then the voice said, well, you know, this is, this is the medicine. It's showing you something. So just chill and sit with it. So I was lying on my back and I just sat with this, this void, this feeling of nothingness. And it just went on and on. And I remember thinking, God, this is awful. If like, if my life was this and I felt this way, I wouldn't want to live it. That's how it was death. It was just the absence of anything. And I was feeling into that because that's what you learn with, I, at least what I learned with ayahuasca is when if something's unpleasant, you just feel into it. Mm. And the deeper and deeper you feel into it, the, the more you, you get out of it. So I was feeling really deep into this feeling of just emptiness and nothingness while she was pushing on my, my abdomen and the pain was like searing. And I almost said like, that's enough. I, I can't handle it anymore. And, and then the pain went away and the, 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 the nothingness disappeared. And all of a sudden I felt love, like the most incredible love and connection and oneness and just, I, I didn't know I could feel that deeply. And I remember thinking in my head, like, what's going on? And the voice said that 
fear and negativity and anxiety and all of those emotions, all of those negative emotions are all illusions. Mm. And what you just saw is that they were an illusion that when you stare into them deeply enough, they, they evaporate because there's they're an illusion. And underneath it is always love, always connection, always oneness. And the love won't come looking for you. The negativity and the fear will. And but you have to seek the love out and you have to sometimes look through the pain, through the fear, through the loneliness, through whatever it is that's in the way. But it will it will evaporate because it's only an illusion. And I just remember the polarity of those those two feelings from complete nothingness and lack of any hope that the one complete extreme to the other. And that's what I mean by like the ayahuasca experience shows you that. And I have that running narrative in my head that explains to me what just happened, which is, you know, incredible because at the end you're like, where did that come from? But, but it did. And the other, one of the other huge messages was that everything's energy. And we are energy and everything around us our body can be transmuted so you know i remember the first time this happened i I felt like i was going to throw up i was going to purge and um i sat with it i don't know what made me sit with it but i just sat with this feeling of wanting to throw up it was a really everybody knows what that feels like it's really unpleasant Mm -hmm. so i just sat with it and i didn't judge it and i just said if it's going to come up it's going to come up otherwise i'm just going to sit with it so as it started coming up and getting closer to closer to me actually like coming out of my mouth it got somewhere about mid chest and then it turned into a yawn a really really big long mouth open yawn for like 15 20 seconds and when the yawn was over there was no more nausea and the message that came into my head was that was energy and it's trans you transmuted it from that feeling into something different and then it happened again and again and again and again so all night long i just kept feeling this waves of nausea that i would sit with and then just like the, the feelings of the loneliness to the love that the feeling just sort of evaporated and it transmuted and so you know that was a, a huge understanding of how much we actually can control mm-hmm. and that energy energy doesn't shouldn't be wasted like so even a negative feeling is energy mm-hmm. so you can decide to try to stifle a negative feeling which never works yeah. by the way it only bubbles up somewhere else or you can wait for a period of time until it evaporates on its own but it's like it's like pissing away energy it'd be like turning on your air conditioning unit and opening all your doors and letting all the coals out. You can take all that negative energy and you can transmute it into whatever feelings you want. It's, it's useful energy. Like they say that with public speaking, that you can take nervousness and change it into excitement. Mm. So if you're feeling nervous before a speech, you can actually take all that nervousness and transmute it into passion and excitement and then use that to make people fall in love with you and your energy. So it's it's the same kind of thought. And that's that was a lesson on, on ayahuasca. That is fascinating. So it's like having an appreciation for energy, any energy, right? Uh, you know, because... You know, what they say is that the opposite of love isn't hate. It's it's nothingness. It's it's yeah, you know yeah. it's indifference, yeah. right? And it seems like you know, being able to recognize when you have those feelings instead of saying, 
oh, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take these bubbles and I'm gonna, I'm gonna force these balloons of the water. Instead, you might, you might want to just tie a string to those balloons and let them lift you up, right? Just find a way yeah. to take that energy and, and, and say, oh, wow, I have this feeling. And then recognize that label and say, okay, I'm gonna now apply this energy in a way that's useful to me, whether it's sitting with it or you're gonna have some sort of um, mental visualization of that transmission, which is, which is a very powerful lesson. Um, so let, let's do this. Um, what I'd love to do is uh, I love the mission that you're on of trying to combine these two worlds. And I can definitely see a world of because uh, with uh, generally creativity and angst and trying to, to develop things is sometimes a very uh, self-destructive force, right? Uh, excessive drinking, all the other things that happen of you're trying to get this this thing to come out of you. And so that is one form of energy to try to have this creation that might be a bit more destructive. And I can totally see something around taking the, the the way that you kind of um uh what's that karate style where you have the energy aikido, aikido? Yeah, aikido. yeah 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 using the aikido energy uh ayahuasca style to have that constructive form of creativity happen i, I absolutely s- see something like that with you which would be incredible um if people wanted to reach out to you if they wanted to get a hold of you on, on either of these fronts to talk to you or merge in the two how would somebody get a hold of you well um they can they can reach out to me at my company, which is Driven Innovation. So it's driveninnovation.com. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a place. That's where I put most of my blogs, which, you know, so you can you can go to a design website, a design and product development website and learn something about self-development in some of those blogs. So, yeah, there's a way that they can uh, get me there. Or, you know, my, my email is victor at driveninnovation.com and people can email me. That's awesome. Either one, yeah. you're designing products or you're designing your life. And it, 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 both of it takes proactive control of the energy and harnessing it. So I, I see the parallels, man. This has been beautiful. Victor, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Super fun. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Appreciate thank you. it. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback on how to improve the podcast, I would cherish that. Please give me an email or shout out at Dylan at heroesofreality.com. That's D-Y-L-A-N at heroesofreality.com. Stay strong, young adventures. Until next time.